I just want to read to you from God's Word, from John chapter 15, verse 9 to verse 17. And there Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. I decided that on this last Sunday evening, I would indulge myself a little bit and just share with you some of my thoughts and reflections at the close of you know, just over 37 years in, in full-time ministry. Well, let me assure you, by the way, that my, my intention is to be involved in ministry in some way in the future. I don't know what form it will take, but I hope there'll be opportunities. But I thought as, as this chapter, this particular chapter, draws to a close, I would take the opportunity to share personally with you. And as I did that, I was kind of thinking, what's the worst thing they could do? Sack me? Hey, <laughs> who gives a hoot? Anyway, so in August, August the 20th actually was 1983, I started off in ministry, age 29, and having been married at that point for, I think, about eight months. And I'd been well-trained in Spurgeon's College in terms of preparation for traditional ministry, as it was then understood. I'd been trained in evangelical theology. I'd had drummed into me the importance of preaching, being true to the Bible, preaching, being rooted in the Bible, that the task of the preacher is to uncover what the Bible communicated in its original time and context, and then seek to make that relevant and apply it to our time and our context. Also, it was made very clear to me that I wasn't only called to be a preacher, but that I was in addition called to be a pastor. That I was called to care for, to shepherd and get among the people God had set me amongst. So in my first church, uh, set in the new town part of Irvine in, in the area called Bursley Hill, I gave everything I had. I preached three sermons a week from scratch, nothing to fall back on. I was a chaplain at the local primary school and also at the local secondary school. I've since found out, by the way, that Nicholas Sturgeon was a pupil. So I want to say after all these years now at last, we are even. She didn't listen to me then. And I don't listen to her now. <laughs> We're even. So, Elaine and myself, as well as that, we also ran the youth fellowship. With the rest of my time, any afternoons and evenings I had, being filled up as much as I could with pastoral visits 
of meetings. But within a few, minute, a few months of starting, and maybe it was a few minutes, but in a few months of starting in ministry, we had to get a dog because Elaine was lonely. And when we had a son and he was a baby, I mean, I did used to look after him at different times, by the way, but one night I decided I was going to stay in for the night and Elaine asked me to go out because she said he wasn't used to me being there all night and it was making it hard for him to settle. Now, you see, the reason that I did this and organized my life the way that I did was because I believed then that if I did everything right, and that if I gave 100%, that the church would flourish. It would grow. It was going to be fantastic. Well, I have to say the church did grow to an extent. It was a very small and immature church when we arrived, and by the time we left, it was a fairly healthy church with around 60 members, and we'd paid off what was, for us, a considerable building debt, and the church was financially self-sufficient. But I don't think that you could say the church ever really took off spiritually, and it was hard work. I was drained and dry by the end of my time, which I think really gives, for me, gives the game away. For though I was in part doing this for the Lord, and I was, yet at the same time, there was a good bit of self rolled in. Because you see, I wanted to do well, but I wanted it for me. I wanted people to think that I was doing a good job, that I was a good pastor. Now, in some way, because of our sinful humanity, it's pretty close to impossible to break free entirely of something of that kind of motivation. But I have to say, there was too much of that in me. And I paid a price for that. But so too did my wife and my family. I always loved them. I did always try to be there for them. But a lack of balance, not so much in the ministry, but at the heart of my life, impacted on me and on those close to me, to my regret up to today. Now that's a battle that's ongoing. I would never say you ever get that totally sorted out. I have. But a big turning point in my life came when I preached a series on the life of Moses. For then as I, I preached through the life of Moses, a truth, a truth that I'd believed for many years, that truth came to me with just a new force and power. The truth of the sovereignty of God, of the lordship of God, and the need for us flowing from this to live our lives above all to please Him and to glorify Him. What this led to in my life was a, a growing understanding, it was a great help, that my main purpose isn't to please people. And it certainly isn't to please myself, to, to be pleased, to feel pleased about myself. But rather, my purpose in life is to please God. That's what first, and this took a, a burden from me in so many ways, because I was released straight away for the impossible task of trying to please people. Because you see, in church life nowadays, if you please one person or one group, then you can almost guarantee that you'll displease another. You'll never get it right. 
trying to please people, making that your priority, inevitably leads to sleepless nights and to stomach ulcers. And I know that. That is experience talking. Now, I want to say, it's still nice to please people. It's great when you can do that. You should never make it your aim to displease people because you think in some way that's making you holy. That's wrong. Certainly you should always listen, always seek to be kind, and I don't think you should ever be rude. But when you make it your aim to please God, then no matter what's going on around you, no matter what voices are trying to, to shout in your ear, it does take such an enormous pressure off you. It really does. It does. With the added benefit that you're no longer beating yourself up because you're not the ideal pastor or the super preacher. For you see, when your focus changes in this way, when it's less about you and more about the glory of the Lord, then that pressure largely goes to. For you see, at one time in my life, if someone had told me they didn't like a sermon, they couldn't understand it or whatever, or that my ministerial performance in some way fell short of their expectations, at one point in my life, that would have devastated me. I have to say, nowadays I still try to take criticism seriously. Whenever somebody says something, I look at it and try to see if there's any substance to what's being said. And if changes needed or an apology needs to be made, I always try and do it. But it no longer devastates me because I'm no longer focused on being that ideal pastor or that super preacher. Rather, in my recent years in ministry, I've been focused on ministering to serve God's glory to the best of my ability. And that's made life and ministry so much easier and so much more fulfilling for me. I've had some lovely nights of sleep. Because you see, I know I fall short. I know I make mistakes. I know that I sometimes preach minging and confusing sermons, but knowing that I'm doing my best to glorify God, and that by doing that, that that means that pleases Him. That brings me joy. That sets me free. I don't want to speak for a long time today, but I do want to just take a wee bit of time to mention some things and people that I'm thankful for. First of all, I want to say I am thankful for my wife, Elaine. Because you see, Elaine is a, a creative person. And sometimes she seems to me like an ideas factory. They just keep on coming out. It's like being in the path of a machine gun. That's what it feels like. We could do this, or we could do this, or we could even maybe do this. Why aren't we doing this? And why are we still doing it that way? Now, for me, somebody like me who likes to just set a course and, and keep going, that can be overwhelming. It can. But often after a bit of struggle, I've taken on board a lot of the input and advice that Elaine has given me. I resist it at first, often feebly, but give me time to think it through, and I get there. And while I haven't done everything she's advised and implemented all her ideas, because some of them are 
quite frankly, quite daft. But while I haven't done that, yet one thing I know and would want to say tonight is that my life and my ministry would be so much the poorer without her. And do you know something? She always has your best interests at heart. You can't do that to the poor church. They deserve better than that. We need to get things moving. So I want to give thanks, though, for my wife. I also want to give thanks to God for the wonderful Christians I've met and I've served with in the churches I've ministered in. I want to say I have met some incredible people. And a number of them, not people who are up front, not people who attracted a lot of attention, but people as I've got to know them, and as I've thought about them, well, Jesus' words have come to me. Those words about the first being last, the last being first. And I've realized that some of these people, that when they're standing there by the heavenly throne, that they'll need a strong pair of binoculars to pick me out. Many of these people I've met here in Hamilton. Some of them it's been my privilege to conduct or to be present at a service of thanksgiving for their life. But really, I am so thankful for the people I've served with here in Hamilton. It really has been a team effort. It's been a true experience of being a family. The pastoral team, leadership teams, the office bearers have all given me incredible support. The youth work across the board that's produced, I would say, I want to say clearly, the best group of young people I've ever known in all my life and ministry. The children's work that's grown here and deepened so wonderfully. The seniors, or as I call the men there, the seniors, but they're so faithful and warm. You go to the meeting and it's just so much fun. The worship team, the singers and musicians who've set the scene just so beautifully in worship. And it makes it an easy task then to stand and preach. But perhaps especially those who work quietly away in the background. The stewards at the door. Those who work and serve in the kitchen. The maintenance team and the cleaning team, people like that, your faithful service, as I've watched and seen all that's gone on, has been such a blessing and encouragement to me because you've done it all to serve the Lord. But now you see you're going into vacancy to find the next man to lead the church into the next chapter, what will be the next chapter of God-glorifying service in Hamilton. Let me tell you what especially encourages me tonight as you prepare to head in to this next chapter. And that is that for many years in many Baptist churches in Scotland, there was a disconnect, a major disconnect between the kind of character that should be expected of a follower of Jesus and the behavior that was sometimes experienced in church meetings and in leadership meetings. People seem to think, and this then led on to a habitual way of living, that kind of once you got the devotional part over, the Bible reading, prayers, worship, etc., that once you got that over, you could then behave as you wished. You could be as rude or aggressive or personal 
as might be expected in a bad-tempered, ill-disciplined meeting at any time or in any place, not the church, anywhere. Let me be clear. That was always wrong. Always wrong. As disciples of Jesus Christ, every part of our life should be transformed by the grace and by the Spirit of Christ. There should be no off-limit areas. A meeting of Christians, any kind of meeting, should be marked by the life of Jesus and should be glorifying to God. Any meeting that falls beneath that standard, I believe, should be adjourned, call a halt, to give God's people time to get their hearts sorted out and get their hearts and lives in line with what God wants His people to be. So what a joy and encouragement then. It was to be a recent church meeting, not days ago, where people at that meeting shared different opinions. Different opinions about important matters, but where they were able to do so in a humble and gracious way. And then at the end of that meeting, accept the decision that the meeting had made. Let that be the standard that this church holds to in the coming years. Never fall below that. Just one final word to you as individuals before I finish. I've said a bit tonight about what encourages me and what brings me joy. And it's true. I am encouraged and I am rejoicing. And you know, the church has changed a lot during my time. I came into ministry during the the end of the period when Britain could maybe be seen as an evangelized country with a settled church whose main purpose in terms of ministry was just to pastor and teach the people of God. But now you see, we're living in a post-Christian, largely unevangelized country. And we've got a huge missing task ahead of us. We've still got to teach and pastor. We've still got to do that, but always with the aim of doing that in order to get the church out into mission to a spiritually needy world. However, there's one barrier to this and one thing that has troubled me throughout my ministry, which I I desperately think we need to keep on working at and need to sort out if we're going to be effective in mission in any way. And that is Christians holding and nurturing grudges against one another. For you see, it is inevitable that in church life, as we grow close to one another, as we rub up against one another, as we should, it's inevitable that there will be times, sometimes, when people offend one another. That's going to happen. But you see, what matters and what demonstrates the difference between the Christian, the church, and the world around us is how we deal with this when it happens. The world out there holds a grudge. The world out there nurses their anger. The world looks for an opportunity to get even. And if that never comes, refuses to let that bitterness go. The result of that is that the person who holds, who nurses that grudge becomes bitter and twisted and ugly inside. As I once read somewhere, the world's worst prison is the prison of the unforgiving heart. This is not what God wants for His children. 
This is not what God wants for his church. To live like this as a Christian is a denial of grace and a sign of spiritual immaturity, or at least some kind of spiritual blindness. Rather, what God wants his people to do is to deal with what divides us in that Matthew 18 way, to go, to speak, to take people along if necessary, to do whatever we need to do, but to get to the place where we release grace and forgiveness to one another. And you know, if you're in a situation where maybe the other person refuses to do that, refuses to cooperate with this, if that happens, you can't sort somebody else out. You can't do that. But what you can do and must do is make sure that there is grace and forgiveness in your heart. You can't sort them out, but sort yourself out and then leave the church and leave God to sort them out. The parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18 is, I think, one that we should never neglect and never forget. We know that, don't we? That servant who's forgiven a huge debt, massive debt, by his king. And he rejoices when that happens. But who then refuses to forgive his fellow servant, what is just a trifle, nothing in comparison, which then results in the original debt being reinstated by his king and by him being thrown into prison until it's paid. What's that saying? Surely it's saying that if we, who have been forgiven much by God, so much, if we then refuse to forgive others, the result of that is that we block off the grace of God from our lives and we live comparatively spiritually impoverished Christian lives. Because we cannot live like that and prosper and know God's blessing. I want this church to go forward into blessing. So again, I just want to ask you to love one another, to live for God's glory, that you might know the fullness of God's blessing. And that's what I'm looking forward to hearing all about Hamilton Baptist Church in the years to come. Let's come and pray together. Father, we just want to thank you for your grace. Your grace that comes into our lives through Jesus. Your grace that you long to release through us into the world around. Lord, if there's anything in us, any attitude, any lingering resentment, any bitterness that we're holding on to and that in turn is crippling us, if there's anything of that in us, Lord, help us at this point in church life and in our life to deal with that and to sort that out. That we might be here, the community of grace and mercy and forgiveness that you want your people to be. May we be truly and fully the people of God to our community. This we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.